Bula, and welcome back to Pacific Voices. For the next three episodes, we'll be in Fiji. I spent some time there speaking with graduate students at the Pacific Center for Sustainable Development, and that's part of the University of the South Pacific. And I have to admit, I have a real soft spot for Fiji, for Fijian culture, and for the university, because I lived and worked there during a leave a few years ago. For some context, Fiji is one of the largest countries in the Pacific, with over 300 islands and some featuring mountains reaching over 3,000 feet in height. It's also a travel hub for the Pacific. If you want to go to a smaller atoll country like Kiribati, you usually have to go to Fiji first. And if you're from outside the region and you visited Fiji, you've probably done so as a tourist. So you'd be familiar with the International Airport, which is in Nandi, on the western drier side of the main island of Vitalevu. The university is on the outskirts of the capital city of Suva, which is on the wetter eastern side of the main island. Suva and the university are sort of like melting pots of the Pacific. There are students and others that come from all over the region to complete their degrees and to work at the headquarters of regional organizations. So it's a pretty unique place. In these interviews, though, I speak with Itake, or Indigenous Fijian students, which provides a perspective of people with a deep ancestral link to the land. To be clear, there are other cultures and peoples in Fiji. In the late 1800s to early 1900s, the British colonial government brought indentured laborers from India to grow sugarcane on land that had been leased from local chiefs. The descendants of those people now make up about 40% of Fiji's population. And although the people of Indian descent are usually referred to as Indo-Fijian, they are fully Fijian. Fiji Hindi is an official language. Trust me, I can tell you from experience, do not go to a Bollywood movie at the old cinema by the market in Suva thinking there are going to be subtitles. You might think, though, that high islands like Fiji are safer from climate change and sea level rise, especially compared to places like Kiribati. Yet climate change is a really serious threat in Fiji, and an existential one to many communities. You see, while there are inland villages on the larger islands, a lot of traditional villages, as well as the towns and cities, are right along the coast, or along rivers that are increasingly prone to flooding because of climate change. Plus, unlike an equatorial country like Kiribati, Fiji's also regularly in the path of tropical cyclones which are becoming more intense and more destructive because of climate change. Back in 2016, Category 5 Cyclone Winston struck the main island of Vitalevu right by the capital of Suva. It was the most intense cyclone on record in the region. 44 people died, 80% of homes lost power, and 120,000 people, that's 15% of the population, needed to find shelter. So folks in Fiji know the experience with extreme events and climate change. For our first interview on this part of the show, I talked to Salote Nasalo. She's a really incredible young woman with a gripping story to tell. Salote grew up in an informal settlement outside of Latoka, one of the larger towns on the western side of the main island of Vitalevu, and not that far from the international airport. She took a big risk in trying to attend university. So she shares some of her story her thoughts about climate change, and her experience as a delegate at COP27 in Egypt. 
This is a pretty emotional conversation. If her words don't motivate you to care about climate change, well, I, I don't know what will. Bulubinaka, uh, my name is Salo Kinasalo. I am currently the president for the Pacific Center for Environment and Sustainable Development Graduate Students Association. And I'm also a master's candidate at the University of the South Pacific under PCSD. Bulubinaka, thank you so much for joining me here today. Uh, I'm really glad we, had, we found a time to, to sit down and chat. Uh, so Lota, I wondered if we could just start by you telling me a little bit about how you ended up coming to graduate school and doing a master's in climate change. I experienced firsthand with my family and every other communities here at home the cruel impacts of climate change. Every year there has to be like at least a minimum of one, two, three, four cyclones. And it's, it's no joke. It's not funny anymore. Every time we rebuild, take it from my family, from experience. We don't have insurance to cover for our household when it gets damaged, um, to rebuild. So every single time there's a cyclone, when a cyclone hits, we recover. And sometimes we don't recover well. We recover from scratch. And that has been a continuous challenge for me, for me personally, uh, having, having my dad as a sole breadwinner in my family, it's not easy because there was three of the siblings and my mom who's never worked her whole entire life because of the Pacific concept of the lady stays at home and my mom is from that generation and the dad works and brings the bread home. So that was the, the, ide the ideology behind why my dad was the only person that's working. It's not because my mom was incapable, but it was just the teaching that was taught to them when they were growing up. So I respected that, but then I saw myself and I said, you know what? I'm tired of struggling. I'm tired of rebuilding. I'm tired of always trying and question myself. I don't know whether there'll be enough food on the table for dinner. I don't know if there's enough food for tomorrow until the end of the week or until the end of the month. It's always an unknown situation. Basic necessities like food is always a question. So having that and having endless cascading events of disasters that comes and impacts our homes every single year is not a joke. So I knew I, I have to do something about it. For you, I mean, climate change is not an academic interest. It came directly from your personal experience. And can you tell me what part of Fiji you grew up in? I grew up in the Western Division. So normally every year when during cyclone season, which is the mid of November to the mid of April, uh, the cyclone normally comes past. Yeah. yeah. I was born in Lutoka Hospital. All of us were, and then I stayed in the West Ends. I only came to Seoul to study at, when I was at university. Mm. So yeah, I always go back home because home is where the heart is, eh? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, the research you're doing yourself here is on mangroves, yeah. and that your interest in mangroves really comes from your own kind of family history. Yeah. yeah. What was your first experience? So growing up as a kid, uh, we, we stayed close to a coastal, a coastal area. So I'm very close to my grandmother, so every time she'd go out and catch crab, and I'm like, oh my gosh, the sea. She's always going out to swim in the sea, and I love the sea, and I love to swim. 
I can spend the whole day at the sea and I will not complain or even look for food because I just love the sea. So once I asked her if I could go with her to the sea to swim, not to catch crab, but just to swim and just like probably carry her bag or help her sell the crabs that she catch on the roadside. And going with her on that one particular day, I thought it was going to be a piece of cake because I was very active. I was very active. Long story short, coming back that night, I realized how hard it is to catch one crab <laughs> having um, cuts and bruises because of those shells that sticks themselves to the mangroves, roots and the, the rocks. And then because you can't see them, they're covered with mud. Coming back home, bruised, and then actually realized, oh no, it's not swimming. It's a struggle to catch the crabs so we can put bread and butter on the table at the end of the day. And then I realized how how we struggled, how my grandmother struggles every single day without complaining to go out every single day to catch crab, sell by the roadside for two, three, four, five hours yeah. till she sells everything in her wet clothes okay. that's muddy. She hasn't had her bath, but only from the sea to wash off the mud, sit by the roadside for a few hours to sell off her catch, and then comes home and it's dark every single day, except for Sunday because it's... She goes to church. Sure. Yeah, so when I came to climate change and I saw how our mangrove ecosystems in Fiji have been deteriorating and they've been affected because of the, the constructions that's happening. And then I, I looked at my grandmother and was like, oh no, I think I found my niche. Mm -hmm. This is an area that I will thrive in because it's an area of passion. I chose mangroves because it reminds me of my grandmother and it's um, a way of me giving back to not just my grandmother, but also to other women, other grandmothers out there who goes to the mangroves and catch to support their individual families at the end of the day. Who are, who are working hard, but maybe it's not recognized as a job yes. by the society around them. And yeah. they contribute to our everyday lives, somehow helped mold me to be the woman or the person I am today because she contributed to that. So what does your family think of you leaving, leaving your old career and coming here to, to study climate change? It was change? a leap of faith. It yeah. was a leap of faith, I will not, I will not lie. It was a leap of faith. Um, I support my mom and dad. Okay. I also support my, my grandparents. Um, as I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm very family orientated. And I'm trying, at the end of the day, every child in the Pacific lives to make their parents proud yeah. and my grandparents proud. So when I got my degree, my dad is like, Salate, my daughter, in, in my local dialect, Salate, my daughter, make sure you're the first in our tribe to get a degree. Wow. So that was what pushed me. Luvengu, like Luvengu is my daughter, my child. Luvengu. Yeah. You have to be the first in our family to get a degree. Make sure you get a degree. So it's always been this echoing, sometimes annoying reminder <laughs> every single day, like when there's an assignment due, and I'm like, oh, I'm so tired, like I don't have to work so hard. That's what pushed me. When I got my degree, I was like, you know what? I'm not gonna stop here. Because the mindset that was told to us, like there's always been these myths and legends that we're from a cursed bloodline. So none of my forefathers attained a degree because we are cursed. 
Wow. I wanted to change that narrative. And I can't tell my child, like my dad's been pushing me, you know? Yeah. I'm like, how come you never tried to get a degree? Why are you telling me, you know? But yeah. then I can't do that. Why? Because I respect my mom and dad so much because they struggled so much to, to give me a life that they didn't have. It wasn't the best, but it was the best it could give. So I wanted to make them proud. So I didn't want to finish yet at having a degree. I wanted to push to attain my postgrad, and now I'm about to complete my master's. And I will not stop at master's, sir. No, I won't. Next year, I will start my PhD. Your personal story is incredible. Uh, just, you know, having been around the area where you grew up, I can see how big of a difference that is from what you're doing here today. But also to think that, you know, during your master's time at university, you got training as a climate negotiator and you went to COP27 around all the world leaders and everything. What was that experience like? I remembered sitting at the top of one of the restaurants in, in um, sorry, in Giza, because oh, yeah. uh, I was funded by the United Nations Voluntary Fund for Indigenous Peoples, um, representing my local people here in Fiji, um, the Indigenous Peoples of Fiji. Uh, I went across, seated there on top of that rooftop with two other colleagues that were um, funded by the United Nations Voluntary Fund for Indigenous Peoples. One of them was the uh, former assistant minister for education, uh, Madam Jennifer. I was called her Madam because I had to be respectful, you know. <laughs> Seated there, she she had a connection there. And then she, the the guy took us to a restaurant on a hilltop, overlooking the pyramids of Giza. Oh, the pyramids of Giza. Sure. Sphinx. I was seated there. I was really tired. I haven't slept for the past 46 hours. Seated there. I was really hungry and tired. Seated there on top of that rooftop. I looked up to the pyramids. And you know what came to me? I was overwhelmed. I couldn't believe that I would one day be seated in front of the pyramids of Giza. Yeah. A girl from the slums. Yeah. A very humble upbringing and to travel halfway across the planet and to have this spectacular scenery, this beautiful view that I never thought that I would reach. I had goosebumps continuously for 30 to 40 minutes. Just wow. sitting there, just that moment, just that yeah. I, I savor that moment and I still feel like my heart still rushed just thinking of that moment because I never thought that I was going to represent my country on a global space like COP, the Conference of Parties. Going there, uh, I see people, they were very, oh my gosh, you're so lucky, you're so fortunate that you get to travel, you get to represent Fiji in that global platform. And I was like, you know what, it's, it's never been about me. At the end of the day, it's not about your achievement or to acknowledge your own, your, yourself. When you go to those global platforms, you don't only represent yourself. You represent your tribe, you represent your village. You will be the voice of your country, of your colleagues in those global places. Because out of the thousands, out of the millions that deserve to be there, you were chosen. That's right. It's, it's an honor, but it's also a responsibility. It is a responsibility, right? yes. Because thousands of people that deserve to be there, you were chosen. You became that mouthpiece, that vessel 
that will be the voice of the thousands and millions of these other people that are going through the impacts that you also experience representing them on that global space. You know, in Canada, um, there's a lot, and I would say the United States, Europe, there's a lot of cynicism about the UN climate conferences that the agenda is not being advanced, they're not being very effective, the countries are fighting over the same issues. And I think lost in that, in the discussion that I hear at home, is how important those meetings are for places like Fiji, like Palau, like Tuvalu, etc., for people from small island countries whose voices are normally never heard, right? Have a chance to sort of be elevated for those few days. Now, whether the world is listening well enough is maybe a separate question. But did you get a feel for that? Like this, that this was this rare opportunity to have sort of Fijian voices heard? My first impression of COP was, wow, I can't believe I'm at COP. Yeah. Um, I was, I attended the UN Voluntary Fund for Indigenous Peoples uh, Caucus, the, the, the Indigenous Peoples Caucus, local communities and Indigenous Peoples Caucus for pre-COP. And then I, I provided my first intervention on the second day of the pre-COP. Mm -hmm. I was, I was shaking my hand, my phone, like I wrote down the, the, the points that I have to mention mm -hmm. because of what we face here at home. Mm -hmm. And it's not an easy task, no. especially when you're a youth, you're new, and to be providing um, an intervention on a global space in front of all these very, very important people. Mm -hmm. They don't look like you. That yeah. don't look like me. So I was standing there in front of a mic, awaiting to be acknowledged to speak. No one knew my name. I looked across the room and I saw that I was the only Pacific Islander seated in that room yeah. on that day, representing the indigenous people of the Pacific when I thought I was only the one from, I was only representing Fiji. It, it gave me a, it gave me courage, you know? Yeah. I'm not only here now for Fiji, now it's for the whole of the Pacific. And it's sad because we're not being equally represented. Yeah. Okay, I get it, we're from the same ocean, but we, we share similar cultures, but we're not the same. They need to be represented as well in those spaces because they have their own unique experience. They have their own story that needs to be told in those global spaces. And it's not the case. So I felt more pressure to stand up and provide an intervention to be their voices on, yeah. that, on that space. I stood up and I was standing there with my hand shaking on my hand getting ready, giving myself some push, come on, Sawat, you can do this, you can do this, do it. Stood up, stood there, and then the co-chair. Yes, the girl with the flower from the Pacific. And in my head, I was like, Madam recognized me, because what I wore was a floral chamba yeah. with a flower on my ear, and she knew very well where I was from. It gave me courage that I was in the right place at the right time, surrounded by the right people, providing my intervention and telling them about the problems that we face here in the Pacific to make sure that our stories are being told. Wow. And is your, uh, so what is, what is your message? Are you talking about the, the challenges that Fiji and, and uh, Pacific peoples face as the climate's changing and disasters are occurring? Is it about, uh, 
requests and, and pleas for support? Is it about calling on the rest of the world to reduce emissions? It's a mix of all of that. My focus is on loss and damage. Okay. Yeah. Because one of the main critical issues that we face here is eventually going to be displacement. Yeah. And as you speak, I've always said this in all my talks that I've been invited to, that 800 communities will have to relocate by 2050. So that means 27 coastal communities every single year until 2050. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, that's no joke. You know, like, it's like you have to leave your home where you were brought up, where your ancestors' heritage has been established, where they fought tooth and nail to maintain that land for you and their yeah. generations to come. You're going to lose that. Not because of people, you're going to lose a war, no. But because of this foreign invader that's coming in and leaking and sipping, poisoning your land until it completely engulfs it and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Wow. That, losing that. Did you feel like people were listening? They listened. You know why yeah. I know they listened? Because when I sat down, I was in tears and 80 to 90% of the people seated in that caucus were in tears as well. So I knew my message went across. What are they going to do about it is up to them because I've sown that seed. And that's the hard part, right? Is that people hear the message, but then translating it into the actions that are necessary is so challenging. Um, but you just have to keep repeating the message, right? Yeah. Um, are you hoping to attend, continue to attend COPS in the future? I will continue to fight. Yeah. And COP is, is the best platform for me to continue to fight and be the voice of my people because not everyone from home will be able to attend it. Because of the capacity that I carry, because of the program that I'm attending, they push me to attend and become their voice. I wasn't always a good speaker, public speaker, no. I wasn't. I don't I even like... <laughs> I was I wasn't. I started when I become nervous. You should have seen me the first time I tried. Like I I, I got emotional, I just kept quiet. First yeah. time I ever tried talking about my personal experience. It's not an easy task. Mm -hmm. Now I've I've mastered it because of the, the amount of exposure I've been given. Yeah. Yeah. Well plus you've got the sort of the I mean this combination of pressure and inspiration yeah. from your family and your community, right? Like somebody has to do this, right? Yeah. And not everyone is given an opportunity to do it. So when the opportunity knocks, take it, grab it. Why? Because the lives, the literal lives of your people depends on it. One of the big subjects in, in international negotiations is climate finance. This idea of the, the global north, the developed world providing uh, finance to the, to the global south. But you know, promising enough money and actually making it happen and making it sure that money goes to the right hands, it's being used in the right ways is so complicated. Um, is that something that, that you've encountered in, in your work um, and particularly in, in the conversations you had at COP27 and elsewhere? Um, with, with that, uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of uh, requirements. Say when when there's a promise, a uh, hundred billion dollar promise, a commitment. Yeah. Um, how much is allocated to Asia Pacific, and from the funding from the Asia Pacific that's been allocated for particularly Asia Pacific, yeah. how much is allocated to the Pacific? Less than what? Fifty million, less than forty million was accessible to Pacific Island countries. 
and how much of that money actually is access to these coastal communities just because of one impact sea level rise yeah there's a lot to this the dynamics around being accessing climate funding is so diverse it's so complicated that even applying to get those funding is a challenge that they the communities already are suffering already yeah. doesn't have enough finance have to um, hire a consultant to write a proposal so they can access the funding that's been promised right. to help their communities that's been impacted by climate change and sea level rise to build a seawall or a nature-based solution. Sure. All yeah. these things, you know, like they make it sound so simple and and yet the requirements of assessing this funding is like applying to Oxford or Harvard. Right so, then, right, so then it means the community needs, like, some of a, a good percentage of the money goes to just the process of applying yeah. for the money, and you have to pay a consultant to do work that isn't actually for adaptation. So, I mean, I don't even, this is so, how to solve this is, is it's a real puzzle. As you, things as simple as that, it's really, oh, we've allocated this much for the Pacific, so they should be good. No, we're not. It's like uh, trying to trying to access funding. It's it's there, but yeah. to reach it is really hard because yeah. only some gets access. Like, uh, say, if it's a it's a chiefly village because mm -hmm. it's one of the main chiefs in Fiji, yeah. they'll get easily because of their chiefly status. But there's another village who are more in numbers, who are like more populated. By this percentage, they can't even access the same funding just because it's a chiefly village. Yeah. No offense to the chiefly village of my my beloved nation. I'm just saying equal representation, equal um, uh, opportunities, because at the end of the day, we're all people. We're trying to live our day-to-day -day basis, and it's why I'm saying this because I was brought up in a in an informal settlement, yeah. you know? We don't have access to these facilities and life is already hard. Yeah, one of the, what you're saying really resonates with um, things observe, observed over the years doing, doing research in the Pacific Islands, which is that certain communities and certain villages seem to be magnets for all of the aid money. But it's because once you've had some experience with it, uh, people in the community know how to go through the process which is a very western like european process of applying for money um you know it's filling out the forms uh it's the right language to use and all this sort of stuff and so as well the funding is so imbalanced that like there's one community in the country that gets most of the aid projects and all these other communities that don't get uh, they don't get touched and it seems like that's what you're that's a problem here as well yeah. and apart from that um say uh there's a green climate funding. You, the government says, okay, we'll be planting this much trees by this time. Take right. instance, in 2019, um, the government passed an initiative to plant 4 million trees in four years, plus 500,000 mangroves. Wow. Committed to that initiative. And then because it was going so well, they decided to up to give it a bit more yeah. nudge 
So they made, they changed, they upgraded it to 30 million trees in 15 years. And yet people rushed. They did planting and posted up all these different organizations, government ministries, which was good. I was so happy. And then I was even one of those people with the students, with our students, that really went on these planting initiatives. And then we realized something. There was no proper background check to tell us, made us aware, oh, you can plant here, or oh, this is the plant you plant here. We don't even have a proper mangrove planting manual to tell us. Which... Yeah, they don't grow everywhere, right? So. Yeah. But not everybody knows that. Yeah. So a lot of these planting activities, these initiatives failed because there's one, there was no proper background probing research done before it was actually passed on that national level. There's a concept people use where they talk about adaptation with a capital A yeah. and adaptation with a small a. So yeah. the capital A is the top-down government program or international program to do something. And the small a is the sort of more autonomous, the community comes up with an idea and expands outwards. There might be funding coming in for it, but it sort of comes from that level. And it sounds like you're describing the problem with the top-down. They set an initiative, we had to plant these money mangroves, but nobody consulted the experts, consulted the communities. And then we yeah. found out that in Fiji, there's not many experts. You're becoming one. Hopefully. And that's why I grew interest to do my study mangroves. Yeah because I wanted to know why are they not growing? Why, I, why are these mangroves that we planted not growing? So that's, that's my thesis. It's based on managing these human-generated mangrove systems and providing recommendations on how to improve planting programs and initiatives and providing this information into organizations that does these initiatives. So it's wonderful to see how your, your research, your thesis really follows directly from your like the experience in the real world, Personal right? Experience. Of what's happening. Personal experience, experience in the real world. Um, and the, the focus on mangroves as well. So that's both about the value mangroves provide to villages in the community, yeah. right? Your grandmother fishing. Um, but uh, in terms of, uh, you know, food, food, et cetera, right? Habitat. Uh, but mangroves also are really helpful for slowing erosion, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it also connected to sort of protecting against sea level rise. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, are you focused in a particular part of the country right now? Uh, my research? study area is around Nasisen Lami and the Vutua, the largest mangrove system in Fiji, Vutua. Mm -hmm. And wh where, what part of Fiji is that in? Vutua. It's yeah. in Ba, the town after Lotoka. Okay, so yeah, sort of northeastern part of Vitaleva, which is the main island. Wow. Uh, we were talking before before you and I started recording, uh, we were talking about the Fijian people's connection to the land. Yeah. And you were uh, using the word vanua, yeah. which is a word that anyone who spent any time in Fiji has heard a lot. But I wonder if you could tell me what it means to you. Um, the vanua. Vanua... Like when you, it directly translates to land, but even the Oxford definition of land, which is mostly refers to the physical component yeah. of the soil, that's 
for for us it's much deeper than that it's the deep linkage the deep interrelatedness between the people and their culture the people and their customs the people and their physical environment and most importantly the people with each other so when we say vanua it is that those linkages amongst so it's mostly our social our environment like our totems how we value how we treasure this relationships between us and our culture between us and our people between us and our environment and maintaining sort of maintaining that balance so when growing up i normally hear the slogan of hear the slogan of nongo kalo nongo vanua it's a a chant it's like a battle chant that i was i hear but it's not so common now but my parents would me like proudly chant this chant nongo kalo nongo vanua if this two things that the indigenous people of Fiji could fight and die for it's for two things nongo kalo which is my god and nongo vanua which is my land and my land doesn't only refer to the physical component yeah. of the land it refers to this deep interconnectedness interrelatedness linkage between the people and what they're surrounding uh, that's a wonderful wonderful explanation yeah uh, is there anything else that you think people need to hear um please don't just listen but right now even promises commitment it's not enough it's not enough we need action so if you're still questioning if you're still doubting if you're still uh not sure if climate change is real it's real now it's just affecting us because like i said we're at the front line yeah. but it will eventually reach you and then when it does reach you and just because your your house is so many thousands of kilometers from the coast that you won't experience sea level rise but climate change will eventually reach you in some other way like it's not just sea level rise and the south pacific will get those islands will get no it's it's going to take a very collective collaboration where everybody has to come has to come to consensus and i hope that there is a realization in everyone eventually they will work together to this common cause maybe not in my generation maybe in a few generations down they will eventually do something but i want them to know there will some people like us like me i'm just a representation of these other warriors these other heroes yeah in these areas that are fighting and we will not be we will not easily lose hope we will continue to fight because it's everything we have. Thanks so much to Salote for being willing to share her experiences. Thanks also go out to my friend and colleague, Beth Holland. She's at the University of the South Pacific and she helped make all this happen. And also to my friend, Sangeeta Mangubai, who was kind enough to put up with me for a few days in Suva. As always, Aaron Woods from UBC produced this episode. And now in our next episode, we're staying in Fiji to talk to another graduate student, Ratu Tavita Rerakalutu, and he's going to talk to us about the resilience of traditional Fijian society. It's another powerful conversation and a pretty interesting contrast to this episode. Stay tuned. We're just at the forefront. Eventually, your island will suffer. So if you save the Pacific, you will save the world.